Welcome to this Uvula audio presentation of A Tramp Abroad by Mark Twain. Volume 4, Chapter 12 The Rat House, or Municipal Building, is one of the quaintest and most picturesque of Middle Age architecture. It has a massive portico and steps before it, heavily balustrated and adorned with life-sized rusty iron knights in complete armor. The clock face on the front of the building is very large and of a curious pattern. Ordinarily, a gilded angel strikes the hour on a big bell with a hammer. As the striking ceases, a life-size figure of time raises its hourglass and turns it. Two golden rams advance and butt each other. A gilded cock lifts its wings. But the main features are two great angels who stand on each side of the dial with long horns to their lips. It was said that they blew melodious blasts on these horns every hour, but they did not do it for us. We were told later that they blew only at night. Within the rat house was a number of huge wild boar heads, preserved and mounted on brackets along the wall. They bore inscriptions telling who killed them and how many hundreds of years ago it was done. One room in the building was devoted to the preservation of ancient archives, there they showed us no end of aged documents. Some were signed by popes, some by Tilly and other great generals. One was a letter written and subscribed by Gotz von Berlinken in Heilbronn in 1519, just after his release from the square tower. This fine old robber knight was a devoutly and sincerely religious man, hospitable and charitable to the poor, fearless in a fight, active, enterprising, and possessed of a large and generous nature. He had in him a quality which was rare in that rough time, the quality of being able to overlook moderate injuries and of being able to forgive and forget mortal ones as soon as he had soundly trounced the authors of them. He was prompt to take up any poor devil's quarrel and risk his neck to rat him. The common folk held him dear, and his memory is still green in ballad and tradition. He used to go on the highway and, and rob rich wayfarers. And other times he would swoop down from his high castle on the hills of the Neckar and capture passing cargoes of merchandise. In his memoirs he piously thanks the giver of all good for remembering him in his needs and delivering sundry such cargoes into his hands at times when only special providences could have relieved him. He was a doughty warrior and found a deep joy in battle. In an assault upon a stronghold in Bavaria, when he was only twenty-three, his right hand was shot away. But he was so interested in the fight, he didn't observe that for a while. He said that the iron hand, which was made for him afterwards, and which he wore for more than half a century, was nearly as clever a member as the fleshy one had been. I was glad to get a facsimile of the letter written by this fine old German Robin Hood, though I was not able to read it. He was a better artist with his sword than he was with his pen. We went down by the river and saw the square tower. It was a very venerable structure, very strong and very unornamental. There was no opening near the ground. They had to use a ladder to get into it, no doubt. We visited the principal church also, a curious old structure with a tower-like spire adorned with all sorts of grotesque images. The inner walls of the church were placarded with large mural tablets of copper, bearing engraved inscriptions celebrating the merits of old Heilbronn worthies of two or three centuries ago, 
and also bearing rudely painted effigies of themselves and their families tricked out in queer costumes of those days. The head of the family sat in the foreground, and beyond him extended a sharply receding and diminishing row of sons. Facing him sat his wife, and beyond her extended a long row of diminishing daughters. The family was unusually large, but the perspective unusually bad. Then we hired the hack and the horse, which Gotts von Berlichen used to use, and drove several miles into the country to visit the place called Weibertrau, West Fidelity, I suppose it means. It was a feudal castle in the Middle Ages. When we reached its neighborhood, we found it was beautifully situated, but on top of a mound or hill, round and tolerably steep, and about two hundred feet high. Therefore, as the sun was blazing hot, we did not climb up there, but took the place on trust, and observed it from a distance while the horse leaned up against a fence and rested. The place had no interest except that which is lent to it by legend, which is a very pretty one, to this effect. In the Middle Ages, a couple of young dukes, brothers, took opposite sides in one of the wars, one fighting for the emperor and the other against him. One of them owned the castle and village on top of the mound which I have been speaking of, and in his absence his brother came with his knights and soldiers and began a siege. It was a long and tedious business, for the people made a stubborn and faithful defense. But at long last their supplies ran out and starvation began its work. More fell by hunger than by the missiles of the enemy. By and by they surrendered and begged for charitable terms. But the beleaguering prince was so incensed against them for their long resistance that he said he would spare none but the women and children. All the men would be put to the sword without exception, and all their goods destroyed. Then the women came and fell on their knees and begged for the lives of their husbands. The prince said no, not a man of them would escape alive, and that they themselves would go with their children into houseless and friendless banishment, but that they would not starve. No, said the prince, not a man of them would escape alive. You yourselves shall go with your children into a houseless and friendless banishment, but that you may not starve, I grant you this one grace. Each woman may bear with her from this place as much of her most valuable property as she is able to carry. Very well. Presently the gates swung open, and out filed those women carrying their husbands on their shoulders. The besiegers, furious at the trick, rushed forward to slaughter the men, but the duke stepped between and said, No, put up your swords. A prince's word is inviolable. When we got back to the hotel, King Arthur's round table was ready for us in its white drapery, and the head waiter and his first assistant, in swallowtails, white cravats, brought in the soup and the hot plates at once. Mr. X had ordered the dinner. And when the wine came on, he picked up a bottle, glanced at the label, and then turned to the grave, melancholy, and sepulchral head-waiter and said it was not the sort of wine he had asked for. The head-waiter picked up the bottle, cast his undertaker eyes on it, and said, It is true. I beg pardon. Then he turned to his subordinate and calmly said, Bring me another label. At the same time, he slid the present label off with his hand and laid it aside. It had been newly put on, but its paste was still wet. When the new label came, he put it on, our French wine being now turned into a German wine, according to desire. 
The head waiter went blandly about his other duties, as if the workings of this sort of miracle was a common and easy thing for him to do. Mr. X said he had not known before that there were people honest enough to do this miracle in public, but he was aware that thousands upon thousands of labels were imported into America from Europe every year to enable dealers to furnish to their customers in a quiet and inexpensive way all the different kinds of foreign wines they might require. We took a turn around the town after dinner and found it as fully interesting in the moonlight as it had been in the daytime. The streets were narrow and roughly paved, and there was not a sidewalk or street lamp anywhere. The dwellings were centuries old and vast enough for hotels. They widened all the way up. The stories projected further and further forward and aside as they ascended, and long rows of lit windows filled with little bits of panes curtained with figured white muslin and adored outside with boxes of flowers made a pretty effect. The moon was bright and the light and shadow very strong, and nothing could be more picturesque than those curving streets with their rows of huge high gables leaning far over toward each other in a friendly gossiping way, and the crowds below drifting through alternating blobs of gloom and mellow bars of moonlight. Nearly everybody was abroad, chatting, singing, romping, or massed in lazy, comfortable attitudes in the doorways. In one place there was a public building which was fenced about with a thick, rusty chain, which sagged from post to post in a succession of low swings. The pavement here was made of heavy blocks of stone. In the glare of the moon, a party of barefooted children were swinging on those chains and having a noisy good time. They were not the first ones who had done that. Even their great-great-grandfathers had not been the first to do that when they were children. The strokes of the bare feet had worn grooves inches deep into the stone flags. It had taken many generations of swinging children to accomplish that. Everywhere in the town were the mold and decay that go with antiquity and the evidence of it. But I do not know that anything else gave us so vivid a sense of the old age of Heilbronn as those foot-worn grooves in the paving stones. Chapter 13 When we got back to the hotel, I wound and set the pedometer and put it in my pocket, for I was to carry it the next day and keep records of the miles we made. The work which we had given the instrument to do during the day which had just closed had not fatigued it imperceptibly. We were in bed by ten, for we wanted to be up and away on our tramp homeward with the dawn. I hung fire, but Harris went to sleep at once. I hate a man who goes to sleep at once. There is a sort of indefinable something about it which is not exactly an insult, and yet is an insolence, and one which is hard to bear, too. I lay there fretting over his injury and trying to go to sleep, but the harder I tried, the wider awake I grew. I got to feeling very lonely in the dark, with no company but an undigested dinner. My mind got a start by and by and began to consider the beginning of every subject which has ever been thought of, but it never went further than the beginning. It was touch and go. It fled from topic to topic with frantic speed. At the end of an hour my head was in a perfect whirl, and I was dead tired and fagged out. The fatigue was so great that it presently began to make some headway against the nervous excitement. 
while imagining myself wide awake, I would really doze into momentary unconsciousnesses, and come suddenly out of them with a physical jerk which nearly wrenched my joints apart, the delusion of the instant being that I was tumbling backwards over a precipice. After I had fallen over eight or nine precipices, and thus found out that one half of my brain had been asleep eight or nine times without the wide-awake, hard-working other half suspecting it, the periodical unconsciousness began to extend their spell gradually over more of my brain territory, and at last I sank into a drowse which grew deeper and deeper, and was doubtless just on the very point of becoming solid, blessed, dreamless stupor, when... what was that? My dulled faculties dragged themselves partly back to life and took a receptive attitude. Now out of an immense, a limitless distance came a sound which grew and grew, and approached, and presently was recognizable as a sound. You'd have away now, perhaps it was a murmur or a storm. It had rather seemed a feeling before. The sound was a mile away, perhaps. Maybe it was a murmur of a storm, and now it was nearer, not a quarter of a mile away. Was it the muffled rasping and grinding of distant machinery? No, it came still nearer. Was it the measured tramp of a marching troop? But it came still nearer, and still nearer, and at last it was right in the room. It was merely a mouse gnawing the woodwork, so I had held my breath all that time for such a trifle. Well, what was done could not be helped. I would go to sleep at once and make up the lost time. That was a thoughtless thought. Without intending it, hardly knowing it, I fell to listening intently to that sound, and even unconsciously counting the strokes of the mouse's nutmeg grater. Presently I was deriving exquisite suffering from this employment, yet maybe I could have endured it if the mouse had attended steadily to his work. But he did not do that. He stopped every now and then, and I suffered more while waiting and listening for him to begin again than I did while he was gnawing. Along at first I was mentally offering a reward of five, six, seven, ten dollars for that mouse, but toward the last I was offering rewards which were entirely beyond my means. I close-reefed my ears, that is to say I bent the flaps of them down and furled them into five or six folds, pressing them against the hearing orifice, but it did no good. The faculty was so sharpened by nervous excitement that it was become a microphone and could hear through the overlays without trouble. My anger grew to a frenzy. I finally did what all persons before me have done, clear back to Adam, resolved to throw something. I reached down and got my walking shoes, then sat up in bed and listened in order to exactly locate the noise. But I couldn't do it. It was as unlocatable as a cricket's noise, and where one thinks that that is, is always the very place where it isn't. So I presently hurled a shoe at random, with a vicious vigor, struck the wall over Harris's head, and fell down on him. I had not imagined I could throw so far. It woke Harris, and I was glad of it, until I found that he was not angry. Then I was sorry. He soon went to sleep again, which pleased me, but... Straight away the mouse began again, which roused my temper once more. I did not want to wake Harris a second time, but the gnawing continued until I was compelled to throw the other shoe. 
This time I broke a mirror. There were two in the room. I got the largest one, of course. Harris woke up again, but did not complain, and I was sorrier than ever. I resolved that I would suffer all possible torture before I would disturb him a third time. The mouse eventually retired, and by and by I was sinking into sleep when a clock began to strike. I counted till it was done, and was about to drowse again when another clock began. I counted, then the two great Rathhouse clock angels began to sing forth soft, rich, melodious blasts from their long trumpets. I had never heard anything that was so lovely, or weird, or mysterious. When they got to blowing the quarter hours, they seemed to me to be overdoing the thing. Every time I dropped off for a moment, a new noise woke me up. Each time I woke, I missed my coverlet and had to reach down to the floor and get it again. At last, all sleepiness forsook me. I recognized the fact that I was hopelessly and permanently wide awake. Wide awake and feverish and thirsty. When I had lain tossing there as long as I could endure it, it occurred to me that it would be a good idea to dress and go out to the great square and take a refreshing wash in the fountain, smoke and reflect there until the remnant of the night was gone. I believed I could dress in the dark without waking Harris. I had banished my shoes after the mouse, but my slippers would do for a summer night. So I rose softly and gradually got on everything, down to one sock. Didn't seem to get on the track of that sock, any way I could fix it. But I had to have it. So I went down on my knees and hands with one slipper and the other in my hand and began to paw gently around and rake the floor, but with no success. I enlarged my circle and went on pawing and raking. With every pressure of my knee, how the floor creaked. And every time I chanced to rake against any article, it seemed to give out thirty-five or thirty-six times more noise than it would have done in the daytime. In those cases, I always stopped and held my breath till I was sure Harris was not awakened. Then I crept along. I moved on and on, but I could not find the sock. I could not seem to find anything but furniture. could not remember that there was much furniture in the room when I went to bed, but the place was now alive with it, especially chairs, chairs everywhere. Had a couple of families moved in in the meantime? And I never seemed to glance at one of those chairs, but always struck it full and square with my head. My temper rose by steady and sure degrees, and as I pawed on and on, I fell to making vicious comments under my breath. Finally, with a venomous access of irritation, I said I would leave without the sock. So I rose up suddenly and made straight for the door, as I supposed, and suddenly confronted my dim spectral image in the unbroken mirror startled the breath out of me. For an instant it also showed me that I was lost and had no sort of idea where I was. When I realized this, I was so angry that I had to sit down on the floor and take hold of something to keep from lifting the roof off with an explosion of opinion. If there had only been one mirror, it might possibly have helped locate me, but there were two, and two were as bad as a thousand. Besides, these were on opposite sides of the room. I could see the dim blur of the windows, but in my turned-around condition they were exactly where they ought not to be, and so they only confused me instead of helping me. I started to get up and knocked down an umbrella. It made a noise like a pistol shot when it struck that hard, slick, carpetless floor. I grated my teeth and held my breath. 
Harris did not stir. I set the umbrella slowly and carefully on end against the wall, but as soon as I took my hand away, its heels slipped from under, and down it came again with another bang. I shrunk together and listened a moment in silent fury. No harm done, everything quiet. With the most painstaking care and nicety, I stood the umbrella up once more, took my hand away, and down it came again. I had been strictly reared, but if it had not been so dark and solemn and awful there in that lonely vast room, I do believe I should have said something then which could not be put into a Sunday school book without injuring the sale of it. If my reasoning powers had not been already sapped dry by my harassments, I would have known better than to try to set an umbrella on end on one of those glassy German floors in the dark. Can't be done in the daytime without four failures to one's success. I had one comfort, though. Harris was yet still and silent. He had not yet stirred. The umbrella could not locate me. There were four standing around the room, and all alike. I thought I would feel along the wall and find the door in that way. I rose up and began this operation, but raked down a picture. It was not a large one, but it made enough noise for a panorama. Harris gave out no sound, but I felt that if I experimented any further with the pictures, I would be sure to wake him. Better give up trying to get out. Yeah, I would find King Arthur's round table once more. I'd already found it several times, and use it for a base of departure on an exploring tour for my bed. If I could find my bed, I could then find my water pitcher. I would quench my raging thirst and turn in. So I started on my hands and knees, because I could go faster that way, and more confidence, too, and not knock things down. By and by, I found the table with my head, rubbed the bruise a little, then rose up and started with hands abroad and fingers spread to balance myself. I found a chair, then the wall, then another chair, then a sofa, then an alpenstock, then another sofa. This comforted me, for I had thought there was only one sofa. I hunted up the table again and took a fresh start. Found some more chairs. It occurred to me now, as it ought to have done before, that as the table was round, it was therefore of no value as a base to aim from. So I moved off once more, at random, among the wilderness of chairs and sofas, wandered off into unfamiliar regions, and presently knocked a candlestick off a mantelpiece, grabbed at the candlestick, knocked off a lamp, grabbed the lamp, knocked off a water pitcher with a rattling crash, and thought to myself, I found you at last. I judged I was close upon you. Harris shouted murder and thieves, and finished with, I'm absolutely drowned. The crash had roused the house. Mr. X pranced in in his long night garment with a candle. Young Z after him with another candle. A procession swept in another door with candles and lanterns, a landlord and two German guests in their nightgowns, and a chambermaid in hers. I looked around. I was at Harris's bed, a Sabbath-day journey from my own. There was only one sofa. It was against the wall. There was only one chair where a body could get at it. I'd been revolving around and around like a planet and colliding with it like a comet half the night. I explained how I had been employing myself and why. Then the landlord's party left, and the rest of us set about our preparations for breakfast, for dawn was about to break. 
I glanced furtively at my pedometer and found I had made 47 miles, but I did not care, for I had come out for a pedestrian tour anyway. Chapter 14 When the landlord learned that I and my agent were artists, our party rose perceptibly in his esteem. We rose still higher when he learned that we were making a pedestrian tour of Europe. He told us all about the Heidelberg Road and which were the best places to avoid and which were the best places to tarry at. He charged me less than cost for the things I broke in the night. He put up a fine luncheon for us and added to it a quantity of great light green plums, the pleasantest fruit in Germany. He was so anxious to do us honor he would not allow us to walk out of Heilbronn but called up Gotz von Berlichings' horse and cab and made us ride. I made a sketch of the turnout. It is not a work. It is only what artists call a study, a thing to make a finished picture from. This sketch has several blemishes in it. For instance, the wagon is not traveling as fast as the horse is. This is wrong. Again, the person trying to get out of the way is too small. He is out of perspective, as we say. The two upper lines are not the horse's back, they are the reins. There seems to be a wheel missing. This could be corrected in a finished work, of course. That thing flying out behind us is not a flag, it's a curtain. That other thing up there is the sun, but I didn't get enough distance on it. I do not remember now what that thing is that is in front of the man who is running. But I think it's a haystack, or a woman. The study was exhibited in the Paris Salon of 1879 but did not take any medal. They do not give out medals for studies. We discharged the carriage at the bridge. The river was full of logs, long, slender, barkless pine logs, and we leaned on the rails of the bridge and watched the men put them together into rafts. These rafts were of a shape and construction to suit the crookedness and extreme narrowness of the neckar. They were from 50 to 100 yards long, and they gradually tapered, from a nine-log breadth at their sterns to a three-log breadth at their bows. The main part of the steering is done at the bow, with a pole. A three-log breadth there furnishes room for only the steersman, for these little logs are not larger around than an average lady's waist. The connections of the several sections of the raft are slack and pliant, so the raft may be readily bent into any sort of curve required by the shape of the river. The neckar is in many places so narrow that a person can throw a dog across it, if he has one. When it is also sharply curved in such places, the raftsman has to do some pretty nice snug piloting to make the turns. The river is not always allowed to spread over its whole bed, which is as much as 30 and sometimes 40 yards wide, but is split into three equal bodies of water by stone dikes which throw the main volume, depth, and current into the central one. In low water, these neat, narrow-edged dikes project four or five inches above the surface, like the comb of a submerged roof, and in high water they are overflowed. A hatful of rain makes high water in the neckar. A basketful produces an overflow. There are dikes abreast the Schloss Hotel, and the current is violently swift at that point. I used to sit for hours in my glass cage, watching the long, narrow rafts slip along the central channel, grazing the right bank dike and aiming carefully for the middle arch of the stone bridge below. 
I watched them in this way and lost all this time hoping to see one of them hit the bridge pier and wreck itself sometime or other, but was always disappointed. One was smashed there one morning, but I had just stepped into my room a moment to light a pipe, so I missed it. Well, I looked down upon the rafts that morning in Heilbronn, the daredevil spirit of adventure came suddenly upon me, and I said to my comrades, I am going to Heidelberg on a raft. Will you venture with me? Their faces paled a little, but they assented with as good a grace as they could. Harris wanted to cable his mother, thought it his duty to do that, as he was all she had in this world. So while he attended to that, I went down to the longest and finest raft and hailed the captain with a hearty, Ahoy, shipmate! Which put us upon pleasant terms at once, and we entered upon business. I said we were on a pedestrian tour to Heidelberg and would like to take passage with him. He said this partly through young Z, who spoke German very well, and partly through Mr. X, who spoke it peculiarly. I can understand German as well as the maniac that invented it, but I talk it best through an interpreter. The captain hitched up his trousers, then shifted his quid thoughtfully. He presently said, just what I was expecting he would say, that he had no license to carry passengers and therefore was afraid the law would be after him in case the matter got noised about or any accident happened. So I chartered the raft of the crew and took all responsibility on myself. With a rattling song, starboard watch bent to their work and hove the cable short, then got the anchor home and our bark moved off with a stately stride and soon was bowling along at about two knots an hour. Our party were grouped amidships. At first the talk was a little gloomy and ran mainly upon the shortness of life and the uncertainty of it, the perils which beset it and the need and wisdom of being always prepared for the worst. This shaded into low-voiced references to the dangers of the deep and kindred matters, but as the gray east began to redden, and the mysterious solemnity and silence of the dawn to give place to the joy songs of the birds, the talk took a cheerier tone, and our spirits began to rise steadily. Germany in the summer is the perfection of the beautiful, but nobody has understood and realized and enjoyed the utmost possibilities of this soft and peaceful beauty unless he has voyaged down the Neckar on a raft. The motion of the raft is the needful motion. It is gentle and gliding and smooth and noiseless. It calms down all feverish activities. It soothes to sleep all nervous hurry and impatience. Under its restful influence, all the troubles and vexations and sorrows that harass the mind vanish away, and existence becomes a dream, a charm, a deep and tranquil ecstasy. How it contrasts with hot and perspiring pedestrianism, and dusty and deafening railroad rush, and tedious jolting behind tired horses over blinding white roads. We went slipping silently along between the green, fragrant banks, with a sense of pleasure and contentment that grew and grew all the time. Sometimes the banks were overhung with thick masses of willows that wholly hid the ground behind. Sometimes we had noble hills on one hand, clothed densely with foliage on their tops, and on the other hand open levels blazing with poppies, or clothed in the rich blue of cornflowers. Sometimes we drifted in the shadows of forests, and sometimes along the margin of long stretches of velvety grass, 
fresh and green and bright, a tireless charm to the eye. And the birds, they were everywhere. They swept back and forth across the river constantly, and their jubilant music was never stilled. It was a deep and satisfying pleasure to see the sun create the new morning, and gradually, patiently, lovingly clothe it with splendor after splendor, and glory after glory, till the miracle was complete. How different is this marvel observed from a raft, from what it is when one observes it through the dingy windows of a railway station in some wretched village, while he munches a petrified sandwich and waits for a train. Chapter 15 Down the River Men and women and cattle were at work in the dewy fields by this time. The people often stepped aboard the raft as we glided along the grassy shores and gossiped with us and with the crew for a hundred yards or so, then stepped ashore again, refreshed by the ride. Only the men did this. The women were too busy. The women do all kinds of work on the continent. They dig, they hoe, they reap, they sow. They bear monstrous burdens on their backs. They shove similar ones long distances on wheelbarrows. They drag the cart where there is no dog or lean cow to drag it. And when there is, they assist the dog or the cow. Age doesn't seem to be a matter. The older the woman, the stronger she is, apparently. On a farm, a woman's duties are not defined. She does a little of everything. But in the towns, it is different. There, she only does certain things. The men do the rest. For instance, a hotel chambermaid has nothing to do with make beds and fires in 50 or 60 rooms, bring towels and candles, and fetch several tons of water up several flights of stairs, a hundred pounds at a time, in prodigious metal pitchers. She does not have to work more than 18 to 20 hours a day, and she can always get down on her knees and scrub the floors of halls and closets when she's tired and needs a rest. As the morning advanced and the weather grew hot, we took off our outside clothing and sat in a row along the edge of the raft and enjoyed the scenery, with our sun umbrellas over our heads and our legs dangling in the water. Every now and then we plunged in and had a swim. Every projecting grassy cave had its joyful group of naked children, the boys to themselves and the girls to themselves, the latter usually in the care of some motherly dame who sat in the shade of a tree with her knitting. Little boys swam out to us sometimes, but the little maid stood knee-deep in the water and stopped there splashing and frolicking to inspect the raft with their innocent eyes as it drifted by. Once we turned a corner suddenly and surprised a slender girl of twelve or upwards just stepping into the water. She had not time to run, but she did what answered just as well. She promptly drew a live young willow bough athwart her white body with one hand and then contemplated us with a simple, untroubled interest. Thus she stood while we glided by. She was a pretty creature, and she and her willow bough made a very pretty picture, and one which could not offend the modesty of the most fastidious spectator. Her white skin had a low bank of fresh green willows for the background, an effective contrast, for she stood against them. And above and out them projected the eager faces and white shoulders of two smaller girls. Toward noon, we heard the inspiriting cry, Say ho! Where are we? shouted the captain. Three points off the weather bow. 
We ran forward to see the vessel. It proved to be a steamboat, for they had begun to run a steamer up the neck car for the first time in May. She was a tug and won a very peculiar build and aspect. I had often watched her from the hotel and wondered how she propelled herself, for apparently she had no propellers or paddles. She came churning along now, making a good deal of noise of one kind and another, aggravating it every now and then by blowing a hoarse whistle. She had nine keelboats hitched on behind and following after her in a long, slender rank. We met her in a narrow place between dikes, and there was hardly room for us both in the crab passage. As she went grinding and groaning by, we perceived the secret of her moving impulse. She did not drive herself up the river with paddles or propeller. She pulled herself along by hauling on a great chain. This chain is laid in the bed of the river and is only fastened at the two ends. It is seventy miles long. It comes in over the boat's bow, passes along a drum, and has paid out the stern. She pulls on the chain and so drags herself up the river or down the river. She has neither bow nor stern, strictly speaking, for she has a long-bladed rudder on each end, and she never turns around. She uses both rudders all the time. They are powerful enough to enable her to turn to the right or the left and steer around curves in spite of the strong resistance of the chain. I would not have believed that such a thing was possible, but I saw it done, and therefore I know that there is one impossible thing which can be done. What miracle will man attempt next? We met many big keel boats on their way up, using sails, mule power, and profanity, tedious and laborious business. A wire rope led from the foretop mast to the file of mules on the towpath a hundred yards ahead, and by dint of much banging and swearing and urging, the detachment of drivers managed to get a speed of two or three miles an hour out of the mules against the stiff current. The Neckar has always been used as a canal, and thus has given employment to a great many men and animals. But now that this steamboat is able, with a small crew and a bushel or so of coal, to take nine keelboats farther up the river in one hour than thirty men and thirty mules can do in two, it's believed that the old-fashioned towing industry is on its deathbed. A second steamboat began work on the Neckar three months after the first one was put into service. At noon we stepped ashore and bought some bottled beer and got some chickens cooked while the raft waited. Then we immediately put out to sea again and had our dinner while the beer was cold and the chickens hot. There's no pleasanter place for such a meal than a raft that is gliding down the winding Neckar past green meadows and wooded hills and slumbering villages and craggy heights graced with crumbling towers and battlements. In one place we saw a nicely dressed German gentleman without any spectacles. Before I could come to anchor, he had got away. It was a great pity. I wanted to make a sketch of him. The captain comforted me for my loss, however, by saying that the man was without any doubt a fraud who had spectacles, but kept them in his pocket in order to make himself conspicuous. Below Hosmersheim we passed Hornburg, Gotz von Berlingen's old castle. It stands on a bold elevation 200 feet above the surface of the river. It has high vine-clad walls enclosing trees and a peaked tower about 75 feet high. The steep hillside from the castle clear down to the water's edge is terraced and clothed thick with grapevines. This is like farming a mansard roof. 
All the steeps along that part of the river, which furnish the proper exposure, are given up to the grapes. That region is a great producer of Rhine grapes. The Germans are exceedingly fond of Rhine wines. They are put up in tall, slender bottles and are considered a pleasant beverage. One tells them from vinegar by the label. The Hornburg Hill is to be tunneled, and the new railway will pass under the castle. The Cave of the Spectre Two miles below Hornburg Castle is a cave in a low cliff, which the captain of the raft said had once been occupied by a beautiful heiress of Hornburg, the Lady Gertrude. It was seven hundred years old. She had a number of rich and noble lovers, and one poor and obscure one, Sir Wendell Lobenfeld. With the native chuckle-headedness of the heroine of romance, she preferred the poor and obscure lover. With the native sound judgment of the father of a heroine of romance, the von Berlichingen of that day shut his daughter up in his dungeon, or his oubliette, or his culverin, or some such place, and resolved that she should stay there until she selected a husband from among her rich and noble lovers. The latter visited her and persecuted her with their supplications, but without effect, for her heart was true to her poor despised crusader who was fighting in the Holy Land. Finally she resolved that she would endure the attentions of the rich lovers no longer, so one stormy night she escaped and went down the river and hid herself in the cave on the other side, her father ransacked the country for her, but found no trace of her. As the days went by and still no tidings of her came, his conscience began to torture him, and he caused proclamation to be made that if she were yet living and would return, he would oppose her no longer. She could marry whoever she wanted. The months dragged on. All hope forsook the old man. He ceased from his customary pursuits and pleasures. He devoted himself to pious works and longed for the deliverance of death. Now just at midnight every day the lost heiress stood in the mouth of her cave, arrayed in white robes, and sang the little love ballad which her crusader had made for her. She judged that if he came home alive the superstitious peasants would tell her about the ghost that sang in the cave, and that as soon as they described the ballad he would know that none but he and she knew that song. Therefore. He would suspect that she was alive and would come and find her. As time went on, the people of the region became sorely distressed about the specter of the haunted cave. It was said that ill luck of one kind or another always overtook anyone who had the misfortune to hear that song. Eventually, every calamity that happened thereabouts was laid at the door of that music. Consequently, no boatman would consent to pass the cave at night. The peasants shunned the place even in the daytime. But the faithful girl sang on, night after night, month after month, and patiently waited. Her reward would come at last. Five years dragged by, and still, every night at midnight, the plaintive tones floated out over the silent land, while the distant boatmen and peasants thrust their fingers into their ears and shuddered out a prayer. And now came the crusader home, bronzed and battle-scarred, but bringing a great and splendid fame to lay at the feet of his bride. The old lord of Hornburg received him as a son and wanted him to stay by him and be the comfort and blessing of his age. But the tale of that young girl's devotion to him and his pathetic consequences made a changed man of the night. He could not enjoy his well-earned rest. He said his heart was broken. 
He would give the remnant of his life to high deeds in the cause of humanity, and so find a worthy death and a blessed reunion with his brave true heart, whose love had more honored him than all the victories of the war. When the people heard this resolve, they came and told him there was a pitiless dragon in human disguise in the haunted cave, a dread creature which no knight had yet been bold enough to face, and begged him to rid the land of its desolating presence. He said he would do it. They told him about the song, and when he asked what song it was, they said the memory of it was gone, for nobody had been hardy enough to listen to it for the past four years or more. Towards midnight, the crusader came floating down the river in a boat, with his trusty crossbow in his hands. He drifted silently through the dim reflections of the crags and trees with his intent eyes fixed upon the low cliff which he was approaching. As he drew nearer, he discerned the black mouth of the cave. Now, was that a white figure? Yes. The plaintive song begins to well forth and float away over meadow and river. The crossbow is slowly raised to position. A steady aim is taken. The bolt flies straight to the mark. The figure sinks down, still singing. The knight takes the wool out of his ears and recognizes the old ballad. Too late. Ah, if he only had not put the wool in his ears. The crusader went away to the wars again and presently fell in battle, fighting for the cross. Tradition says that during several centuries the spirit of the unfortunate girl sang nightly from the cave. Although many listened for the mysterious sounds, few were favored, since only those could hear them who had never failed in a trust. It is believed that the singing still continues, but it is known that nobody has heard it during the present century. <laughs>